My name is Toby, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, and Andy, thank you. You've been a, a wonderful host. There's just one thing that's lacking is uh, I never got a massage. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but other, other than that, you've been perfect. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a real treat to, to come here and hang out with you guys and, and uh, chat and, and do that kind of thing. Um, my sponsor tells me that this is service and that's, and that's why I need to come and do it. But, but I like to start these things by recognizing where the real service is being done. Um, and that's back in my home where my wife is with my seven year old and three year old. Uh, so that I can come here and hang out with you guys and have fun. Um, so that's, that's the real, the real area of service. I was telling this story at dinner last night, but my seven year old was, uh, I was it was bedtime, and I was explaining to him that uh, this was Thursday night, that on Friday I'd be going out of town on um, one of these trips to go to a meeting. And uh, he asked my wife, he says, why does Daddy go on these, why does the Daddy go on these trips to, to these meetings? And, uh, you know, she was very kindly saying that, you know, well, people like to hear Daddy talk about his life. Um, and he said, well, are, are there lots of people there? And she said, well, sometimes. And... Uh, <laughs> And um, uh, and so she she goes out and I'm I'm uh, with the uh, with the three year old and the seven year old's up on a uh, a bunk bed and he looks down and he says he says Daddy do you speak to a lot of people at those meetings I said sometimes he said so you're just like the president um what a what a treat we've had well wonderful speakers you know i'm just i'm excited to be in the company of uh other completely demented alcoholics you know <laughs> you know i think when our when our best success story comes from uh i think jack who uh uh you know was living in ruby <laughs> um I, you know i think we're doing well but uh uh, the other speakers are my kind of alcoholics, you know, my kind of alcoholics. So um, I'm pleased to be here. What what I like to try and do is um, I read somewhere, I, uh, I read more than I ought to, uh, and I read um, that, uh, that when I talk from my spirit, I talk to be connected. And when I talk from my ego, I talk to be separated. And when I listen from my spirit, I listen to be connected. And when I listen from my ego, I listen to be separated. So I try and stand up here and talk from my spirit. And, you know, who knows how, <laughs> how well I do that, but, uh, but that's, that's what I aim to do. And I'd ask you to aim to, to listen from your spirit and, and see if we can be connected rather than separated. Um, so, I love drinking. <laughs> I mean, it was good. I really, I really enjoyed drinking. Um, it, uh, man, it gave me everything I needed. Everything I needed. As a, um, uh, you know, as a, as a very young boy, um, I, uh, I, was, I was actually really struck by what Murray was talking about. It was one of the first times I've ever heard this. Um, and it's it's what I share. As a very young boy, I struggled with questions way beyond my age. You know, just as a as a six, seven year old boy, I wanted to know what my purpose in life was, and you know where it all began and where it's all going, and and these kind of you know just questions swirling around my mind. I don't know why they were there. I don't know that it makes me smart or stupid or what, or what but they, I knew they were there and, and, and I was just uncomfortable and, and thought that, you know, I needed to have answers to these questions. And I also felt just terribly alone and afraid and uncomfortable. Um, I, was, I was a real shy kid um, and just, you know, didn't know how to talk to people or interact or do any of that kind of stuff and just, just uncomfortable. Just really uncomfortable, and um, oh, I better explain. I'm, it says I'm from Franklin, Tennessee, which is true, but originally I'm from from London, England. Um, 
you know, so if I sound a bit strange or say something a bit strange, um, we'll get Murray to translate, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, but but certainly in in the uh, in the in the country and and in the home that I grew up in, alcohol was very easily accessible. Uh, you know, it was. Um, uh, it, it was the done thing to drink wine with dinner, and it didn't really matter how old you were. That's that's what you did, and uh, you know, a beer was uh, really not considered really alcohol. I mean, it's just beer. Um, by the way, I've I've really never understood this. Can you qualify uh, in AA if you've only ever drunk American beer? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I never understood why you people bother drinking American beer. Um, I mean, you have to drink so much. It's, uh, um, like Kathy was talking about the, uh, the O'Doul's and things, you know. Um, so, uh, so, so getting access to alcohol was, was really never, never a big deal. I can't tell you my big aha moment when, when I had my first drink and, uh, and that kind of thing. I don't remember that. I've always grown up drinking. Uh, but what I do remember vividly was was what it did for me um, and how it made me feel. And I was, you know, like I say, I had these questions, this mind that just wouldn't stop going. I, I really struggled to sleep because at light, night I'd lie down and I'd think, well, where have I put that? What have I done with that? Where's this going to go? Oh, I should have said this. I should have done that. You know, and it's just going and going and going and going and going. Um, so, I, you know, I, I never really slept very well. Um, and then through the day, I'm just so overcome with fear or um, uh, just uh, just a general sadness or, you know, just all of this stuff. And I took a drink and just, <sighs> man, I like drinking. <laughs> I mean, it just, <sighs> you know, I wasn't afraid anymore. The big questions kind of seemed irrelevant. You know, just not terribly important anymore. <laughs> um, you know, the big question was how much fun could I have? Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't afraid and the loneliness. Uh, you know, I don't know that it took the loneliness away. It just took me to a place where I didn't care that I was lonely. You know, okay, so I'm alone. I don't care. I don't really like you people anyway. <laughs> you know, I'm quite happy to be alone. <laughs> I don't really want to be connected. Um, so, uh, so you know, it just it just was the solution to to me. You know, the solution to just this this stuff. Um, at, at, uh, as as young as I can remember, um, you know, I uh, I was sent away to uh, boarding school when I was eight years old. And really didn't enjoy that particularly. And I remember we'd periodically be allowed home for the, for the weekend. And, um, you know, Sunday dinners in our house were a big affair and, you know, you'd have a big roast and people would come over and there'd be a lot of drinking. And, and I quickly discovered that if I drank enough, uh, at lunch on Sunday, then going back to school on a Sunday night really wasn't a big deal. But if I didn't, it was horrendous. I would literally open the car and jump out, um, you know, and had to get tied into the car and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. But if I drank, it's, yeah, let's, you know, let's go to school. We'll, you know, hang out with the guys and, and have a good time. And uh, and then I soon uh, began to um, steal. I don't know why, but I, I would steal gin. I, you know, I never really liked it, but I'd steal it. Um, for my parents and my uh, my stepfather had these uh, big binoculars um, that he would, you know, I guess he'd take to races or whatever, and he'd, you know, have these big binoculars, and they had a big sort of leather case that they would they would go into, and um, I would stick a bottle of gin in each of the sort of the, the sections of it, close that up, and and go off to school, you know, on a <laughs> on a Sunday night, and. Uh, uh, you know, it certainly helped me see more clearly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then so, 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 you know, Sunday night was, was fine and then Monday morning would roll around and Monday morning, you, you know, you've got to get up and you've got to go to class and, and, and participate. I guess that's what they require you to do at school is participate. Um, 
I never really got on very well with that. Um, so there I am, eight years old, and at seven, eight o'clock in the morning, the way that I enable the noise to stop in my head, these feelings of terror, um, this aloneness, this sadness, this uh, fear, this just, just this stuff, the way that I quietened that down so that I could go to class was, uh, was to drink a glass of gin before school. And, <sighs> okay, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready. Now I wasn't ready to learn, <laughs> you know, which again was one of the reasons that school and I parted company rather quickly. Um, so, you know, when, when, I, when I stand up here and, and I tell you that my name's Toby and I'm an alcoholic, I believe I'm telling you two uh, important things about myself. And, and for me, it's important to be clear what those two things are. The first thing is that I believe that I react differently to alcohol than normal people. Uh, something happens to me. I don't know what it is. They describe it as this phenomenon of craving. But something happens to me that when I take alcohol, I want to drink more. And it doesn't matter what is going to get in my way. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are going to be. When I take alcohol, I want to drink more. Um, and, you know, the, the example that I use for that is, um, uh, you know, I, I, had, I had this plan. It was a good plan. I, I have many good plans. Um, my sponsor disagrees with that. But uh, uh, so, so, you know, my plan was, well, I'll, I'll go to the pub and I'll have three beers, uh, European beers. Um, I'll have I'll have three beers. I'll come home. I'll you know I'll watch some TV. I'll go to bed and I'll I'll get up the following morning and and go about my business. And um, I mean that's not it's not a bad plan, right? So I went to the pub. I had a beer and <sighs> had another one because if one's good, two's better. Uh, you know, and had the third. And here's the strange part. Here, here is the part that really confused me in AA for a long time. After that third beer, I went home, I watched some TV, I went to bed, and woke up the next morning and went about my business. Uh-oh. Sorry, guys, you don't have an alcoholic up here. <laughs> you know, that that to me for a long time was very confusing because you all were telling me, well... You know, once you start, you can't stop. And there's an example of where I started and I stopped. And the plan was so good that the following night I thought, well, I'll, I'll do that again. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a good plan and it worked fine, executed uh, absolutely as it should have been. And uh, and so the following night I have the first beer and <sighs> it feels good and the noise starts to stop and then I have another beer and I start to get chatty. Um, you know, and then, then, then I have the third beer, and the next thing I know is three days later, I'm in Amsterdam smoking crack with hookers, going, what happened? <laughs> you know? <laughs> what happened to my plan? I mean, it was a good plan. And the night before, it worked perfectly. <laughs> you know, when, when I, when I take a drink, I have no idea what's going to happen. You know, uh, my sobriety date is May the 25th, 1992, so I've been sober for 16 years, and I believe that today, if I went up the street to one of your local bars, and no, I'm not looking for a recommendation, if I went up the street to one of your local bars and took a drink, I have no idea, after not having drunk for 16 years, I have no idea whether today will be a three beers and home night, or a three beers and, I don't know where you guys go to drink, you know, probably Brazil or something like that. <laughs> have a good time. Um, you know, but I, I have no idea, no idea, after all this time, if I took a drink, whether it be three beers and home or three beers and uh, Amsterdam or wherever it may be. None. So there's a real easy solution to that, and we hear it a lot in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. What's the solution to that? Just don't drink. Right? I mean, it's, it's simple. Just don't drink. Don't pick up the first drink and you won't get drunk and, and all of that good stuff, you know? It's real simple. There's only one, one other problem. And the other problem is I am completely and utterly mental 
I am deranged. I am nuts. You know? As my friends that spoke before me were. <laughs> I have a mental problem. You know, because it's, if it was that simple, I wouldn't need you people. Right? If it was that simple, just don't drink and you won't get drunk, I wouldn't need any of you. Because I just wouldn't drink. And then I wouldn't get drunk and all this stuff wouldn't be happening. But, you know, when I drank, I ended up at 14 years old, I ended up homeless on the streets, eating out of dumpsters, waking up with people urinating on me, begging for my food. I ended up in, in mental asylums where they would strap me down with leather straps on gurneys and inject me with Haldol. I ended up in, in, in jails when I drank. Now, you guys have heard me speak for maybe 10 minutes now. right? Do any of you think it makes any sense for me to ever pick up a drink again? No. There's only one idiot in this room, that could ever possibly think it might be a good idea for me to drink again. <laughs> right? And you're looking at him. <laughs> I am completely insane. You know, and, and I would wager the other speakers that, that, that uh, spoke before me, you know, I look at them, I think, man, I hope she never drinks again. <laughs> you know? And the, and the only ones that are susceptible to that thought is them. You know, no, nobody around me ever thought it was a good idea for me to be drinking. Nobody. I'm the only idiot that thinks it's a good idea. I'm mentally deranged. You know, I drink and bad, bad things happen. And the other part of that is, you know, I know that. It's not like I'm, you know, people talk about denial and that, and that kind of stuff. I, I always understood, uh, you know, after a, after a couple of years, when I drank, bad things are going to happen. I know that. I'm not unclear about that in any way, shape or form. I know that when I drink, there are going to be consequences and they're going to be bad. I'm going to drink anyway. There are no consequences for me that are sufficient to stop me drinking. There is no, well, when it gets bad enough, he'll stop. For me, there just isn't. Like I told you, at 14 years old, I was homeless on the streets and uh, swore that whatever else happened in my life, whatever else happened, I would never, ever, ever end up in that situation again. Ever. This will not happen to me. And if ever there was somebody with a determination or a willpower to, uh, to make a change, and not only the not drinking, but the different life. You know, this, this time it's going to be different. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to stop the lying. I'm going to stop the cheating. I'm going to be a better human being. I'm going to be a better son. I'm going to be a better member of society. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to do the right stuff. And, 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 and I wanted that stuff. I just wanted it desperately. You know, I'd sit there and, and, uh, and watch these people. Now, I was, I was homeless in the nicest parts of London. You know, I've got some standards. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> So, you know, I'd watch these very wealthy people, you know, uh, walk down the street and drive around in their Bentleys and Rolls Royces and, and this kind of thing. And, uh, uh, and I remember walking past the windows. I don't know if you've ever done it, but uh, certainly in England, you know, you walk past these windows of these uh, townhouses and if they've got the curtains open, they just look so warm. Just so warm. You know, and not just physically warm, but they're just, you know, and I'd make up these little fantasies about the families that lived there and how warm their lives were. You know, and I'd just look in there. And, and, and that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. If only I could, if only I could straighten up. If only I could turn over this new leaf. If only I could, you know, get straight. If only I could stop the drinking. If only I could stop the lying. If only I could, you know, get a job. If only I could do this stuff. And it wasn't through my lack of desire. It just absolutely was not through my lack of desire. I wanted that more than anything on earth. 
I wanted to be normal and okay. More than anything on earth, I wanted to feel <sighs> without the consequences. More than anything on earth, I wanted the noise to stop. More than anything on earth, I wanted to walk and not be afraid. I wanted to feel connected. I wanted to feel like I was a part of the human race. And, and with everything in me, I made a commitment to do that. With everything in me. And sometimes it would last an hour, other times it would last three hours. But my desire for that, my willpower, the fear of staying where I am or going back to where I was, was never sufficient for me. It just didn't work. You know, and, 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 and so, um, so I did manage to claw my way off the, the streets at 14, but at 17 I was back there again after I swore that this would never happen to me again. You know, and, 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 and I'd be, you know, I'm not standing here telling you I didn't lie because I certainly did that, uh, but I didn't mean to lie with some of this stuff. When I told my family and when I told my friends and whoever was interested that this time it's going to be different, you know, when I told them that this time I'm really going to straighten up, I was not lying to you most of the time. <laughs> I was telling you the truth because I wanted that. I wanted that more than anything. This time it has to be different because I'm dying and I can't seem to make it stop. This time it has to be different and I just lacked the power to make it change. I lacked the power to make it different. I couldn't do it. Not only could I not stop drinking, but I couldn't become a different person. I couldn't stop the noise when I wasn't drinking. And now even when I am drinking, you know, I, I would spend those uh, last uh, years on the streets running, literally running, with a bottle of whiskey, drinking it as, uh, as I was running and howling. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> um, because it wasn't happening anymore. <sighs> was not happening anymore. I was drinking and the noise and the questions were still there. I was drinking and now the fear was beyond anything I could ever imagine. I was drinking and the loneliness was crippling. And, and the drinking wouldn't make it stop anymore. And so, and so I'm in a place of, and they describe it well in the book, um, I'm in a place of complete hopelessness. Where do you turn? Where do you turn when you have come to the realization that the only thing in your life that has ever made you feel moderately okay no longer works? Where do you turn when you come to the realization that it doesn't matter how badly you want to straighten up and turn your life around, you can't. It's impossible. You know, and, and I've been to the psychiatrists and, uh, you know, the, the mental institutions that my friends have been in and, <laughs> um, you know, and, and had all of that kind of stuff and, and it didn't work. And, and I have nothing against those, those people. It just, you know, the psychiatrist didn't work for me. I don't know why. And I went to church. And it was, to me, an interesting intellectual exercise. There was a guy, you know, standing up kind of like I am today and he was talking about this stuff. And I thought, well, that, yeah, that really sounds interesting. You know, that's, that sounds something like uh, it might be useful to me. And, you know, maybe we'll look at some other religions and, and this kind of stuff. And, and it's very interesting. But I never experienced anything. You know, nothing ever happened to me. It was just up here and it was something kind of interesting. You know? I didn't get it. I didn't feel the power. Um, the love of my family, it didn't matter how much they cared about me. It didn't matter how much they wanted to do for me. It didn't work. So where do, where do you turn in that completely hopeless state? You know, where do, I mean, where do you go? And I had always been under the impression and the belief that if ever I ever wanted anything out of life, 
There was only going to be one person that was going to provide that, and that was me. If you ever want anything out of life, you've got to go and get it, right? And, 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 and I don't just mean the stuff. I mean your time, your attention, your love, um, all of that. If that's what I want from you, I'm coming to get it from you. I have to come and take it from you. And, um, you know, I'm not that stupid, so uh, the first way that I'll try and get it from you is manipulating you into thinking that you want to give it to me. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, I'll come with a two-by-four and smash you over the head and take it. <laughs> right? And, and you can as easily do that with emotional stuff as you can with physical stuff. But the only way that I was going to be provided for, the only way that I was going to get what I needed out of this life, out of this world, was to come and take it from you. I was absolutely sure that nobody cared enough about Toby other than Toby to provide for him. And I'm coming to get it from you. And so the relationship that I had with everybody and anybody and anything was that you are there to serve me. And that if I can't get it from you or you don't have it, goodbye. It's no wonder I wasn't terribly well connected. <laughs> and, and so I ended up in... Um, uh, I, I'd actually been to treatment uh, first when I was 14. And, um, uh, you know, they get confused. I told them I was Satan. Uh, they transferred me to the psych ward. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I'm one of the one of the uh, one of my fame, claims to fame. I'm one of the few that has been court ordered out of a treatment centre. So, <laughs> 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 um, so, so I very briefly and 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 before that, I was uh, detoxing and uh, you know, I really didn't know what was going on. And uh, I guess they had to rush me to hospital to, the, to do the detoxes. You know, I'm a 14-year-old kid. At the time, it seemed like that's what you do. But looking back and seeing kids that age, I mean, it's, wow. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, I'd, I'd, you know, I had some idea of what went on at treatment. The idea that I had of what went on in treatment and the two most important things to me were that they would feed me and give me a bed. And, and I was not capable of doing that for myself. And, um, and so I was, uh, as I said, I was on the streets in London and I'd call my father periodically and he was over in, I think, Australia at that time. And I'd call him collect and I'd say, Dad, I can't tell you where I am. I can't tell you what I'm doing, but they're after me. Click. <laughs> I was a model son. <laughs> I tell you what, I hope there's no justice in this world. I'm in real trouble with my two boys. <laughs> and then I, and then I, you know, I'd call him uh, maybe a month or two later and say, I can't tell you where I am, I can't tell you what I'm doing, but they're trying to kill me. Click. <laughs> and for whatever reason, he became concerned. <laughs> and uh, and and so this part is kind of hazy to me. I don't really know how it happened, but uh, I ended up on. His, uh, his doorstep in uh, London, he had a house in London, I ended up on the doorstep there, and he was there, which he shouldn't have been, I guess he, uh, like I say, he was concerned and, and flew over, and, uh, and he looked at me and he said, uh, he said, come on in son, and I'll, um, you know, I'll give you a shower and we'll, we'll buy you some new clothes, and we'll get, get a meal in you, and we'll take you, you know, down the high street and um, find a little room for you to, to rent and get you a you know, a little job somewhere, sort of stacking some shelves or, you know, moving some bricks or, you know, whatever it may be. And I knew it was pointless. I mean, I just knew it was completely hopeless. Why? I, I can't maintain that. You know, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to drink and I'm not going to show up for work and I'm going to spend the money that I have on more drink and I'm going to end up back on the streets again. I lack the power. To me, that first step was not, was not hard. I was very familiar with that before I came to AA. That I cannot seem to change myself. I cannot seem to change my life, no matter what the stakes are. No matter what the consequences of me not making a change are, I cannot 
change it. And 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 I said to him, well, you know, maybe I should go to treatment. And for whatever reason, he jumped on that. And the next day, I was off. <laughs> <laughs> And and so and so there I am in, in treatment and, and, and doing that stuff and uh, you know and uh, sort of got some clarity back and um, and and you end up sort of where I started <laughs> you know which is alone and afraid and filled with this noise and these big questions and um, just not able to to connect with people and just this general sadness and uh, and, and this kind of stuff. And and what began to happen is I began to get some kind of hope. And and to me this is the interesting part, the hope that I got and and I think it was it was a mistake. But the hope that I got was that now that I'm not drinking, what I can do is I can get the job and I can get the house and I can get the wife and I can get the car and I can get the stuff that I see all these other people. When I was on the, on the streets, um, you know, in, in the nice parts of, of London looking at these people and they all had this stuff and they seemed to be happy. And now that I'm not drinking, I can get all of that stuff and finally I can be happy and at peace. And once I get that stuff, then <sighs> it'll happen. You know, and I don't need to worry about my purpose in life because my purpose in life is getting that stuff so that I can be happy. And and so I went about doing that. Now, I, you know, I had left school at 14 and I had no real education and, and I started to ask around what those rich people did and it turned out they all worked in finance. And, uh, and so I went to a bank and said, I'd like to work for you. Uh, <laughs> they laughed. <laughs> <laughs> they said, well, what degree do you have? I said, I don't have one. Um, and uh, in England we call them A-levels. Well, what A-levels do you have? I, which is equivalent of a sort of high school deal. I said, I don't have those either. Um, they said, well, you're going to need a degree to, to work for us. I said, okay. And I uh, looked around for the best schools in London and um, uh, went to them and said, I'd like to come and study with you. They laughed. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, and said, well, what, you know, what A-levels you had? I said, I didn't have those. So uh, uh, so I finally went to a place and said, I need to, the equivalent of graduate from high school. They didn't laugh, and they said, okay, come on. And and so I did that, and then uh, um, I called the, uh, the university and said, I've done what you asked. Can I come and study with you? They said, okay. And then uh, while I was doing that, I got a, a job... Um, Working in uh, in England, we call it the city. It's the equivalent of Wall Street, and uh, and started working there and uh, worked my way through college and ended up uh, being a, an equities trader, trading billions of dollars worth of stock. Uh, one of the youngest traders on the floor, um, you know, with the guys next to me ordering Ferraris to be delivered to the bank. This is the big you know dot com era and and this kind of stuff, and making money, and I got the house, and I got the wife, and I got the car, and, uh, you know, we're traveling around Europe and uh, having a good time and doing that kind of stuff. And the thing is, I'm still the little boy looking through the window, thinking how warm it must be in there, because it's not warm in my house. I'm not drinking. I'm in AA. I'm going to a meeting here and there. I look good. I got all the right stuff. You know, if you'd looked at me, you would have thought, man, he's got a nice life. And I'm dying from the inside out in AA. Now, had I worked the steps? Kind of. You know? I mean, as much as I needed to. <laughs> but that wasn't really where the answer was. The answer was in the staff. The answer was getting her and getting the house and all that kind of thing. And once I got that, and I'm on my way to that, and I've got more than most people, and I'm not getting. I'm still dying. I'm still the little boy, alone and afraid. Although now I can put on a pretty good act. You know, now I can pretend better. I've learned through through you people, uh, which is amazing. I've learned some social skills, and I know how to interact and. You know, and I've learned that the, the skills that I had hustling on the streets are exactly the skills they're looking for uh, in finance. 
You just have to wear a suit to do it. <laughs> and have a degree. Um, so, so there I am, sort of, you know, going along and, um, and, um, I had, I had got married and, um, my wife became pregnant with our, with our eldest son. And she said, um, and she was American and she said, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move back home to raise our children. And, you know, nobody clued me in when you marry a southern woman that, you know, as soon as they get pregnant, they're going to go home to mommy. Um, I, I understand now that's pretty common. That's what happens. But uh, no, nobody had the sense to tell me that. <laughs> um, so uh, so I go from, you know, having uh, six screens in front of me, you know, a whole bunch of people, uh you know, telling me how wonderful I am and just information flying at me and uh, really moving and shaking and doing this kind of stuff to holding a newborn baby in Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> Thinking, what happened? <laughs> and so now I have nothing to blot out the noise. You know, I don't have anybody telling me how cool I am. In Paducah, Kentucky, when I told them what they did, what I did, they said, no. <laughs> you know, so I couldn't have anybody tell me, man, you're, that's great. Um, you know, no one was impressed. <laughs> other than me. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I, so there I am just, just with nothing. And on top of that, those of you that are parents with a newborn baby. And and although that seems like it might have been a distraction, it was, you know, it just highlighted everything that I was frustrated about in my life. You know, it just it just highlighted how lonely I was, um, and it highlighted how sad I was, and how afraid I was, and how disconnected from any kind of God thing I was, and. And like I say, I really was was the same little boy. I looked better and had more stuff, but I was the same little boy that I was on the streets. And so, so now I'm I'm in a really hopeless point in in AA. Um, you know, thinking, well, it's not working. It's it's just not working. Um, the stuff isn't working. The AA stuff isn't working. And, and, and you guys were my only hope the first time I came in. And now my only hope is gone. And, and really I believe this is when I came to the second step. Which is I was forced into a corner where I had to believe. And, and, and it was exactly that. I was forced into a corner. I did not Stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to get God and that's the right thing to do. No. <laughs> I was backed into a corner and forced to make a decision that either there is some sort of magical force, some kind of power out there that can do the impossible. Or there isn't. And if there isn't, I am doomed. I am literally doomed because I cannot make the change I cannot transform myself from a lonely frightened little boy to a man filled with love and compassion it is impossible so either there is a force out there which I guess we call God I, you know, I don't really care what we call it but either there is some force out there that can make that change for me because I know nothing else will. I know the money won't and the stuff won't. I know uh, the, the human love won't. There is nothing there that can transform me. When I make that decision to turn over a new leaf and this time it's going to be different, in AA even, I can't do it. So either this thing exists or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I am doomed. So, you know, my start was, I'm going to choose to believe that it does, but secretly I don't think it does. <laughs> really. 
<laughs> you know? Okay. Because I know what is required here. I absolutely know what is required here. And I guess in biblical terms they call it a miracle. You know, in non-biblical terms, I believe they call it impossible. <laughs> but that, that is absolutely what is required here. That is what I'm looking for, is the impossible to happen. And, and, so, and so that was the decision that I made, and that was, that was really the start for me. And then the second thing that, that I saw in the, in the big book that, uh, that has completely revolutionized and changed my life um, they call it, you know, they use pretty words like a, um, you know, a triumphant arch through which you walk to freedom. Uh, that sounds good too. Um, and and for me, it was this line, and it said, "Being all powerful, being all powerful, He provided what we needed." Huh. All my life, I wanted to know who's going to take care of me. And all my life I've been absolutely sure the only person that's going to take care of me is me. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed. And so I can stop fighting now. And the freedom which I believe they're talking about is when I first came to AA, I thought the freedom was freedom from alcohol and, and I think that's certainly true. But now they're talking about this freedom, freedom from self. Freedom from me seeing all of you people as a place where I come to get. Because if I'm the one that's providing what I need, then the only thing that you can be to me is providers of stuff. And I'm coming to take it from you because I know you're not going to give it up willingly. And so I come out into the world and I take, take, take selfish and self-centered, driven by a hundred forms of fear. I am afraid I will not be taken care of. I am afraid I will not be provided for unless I get out there and provide for myself. And it says earlier in that passage, we have to quit playing God. I cannot provide for me. It says we're not very good at it. You see, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to fulfill this job function that I am completely unqualified for. You know, I am trying to play God, and for me, one of the requirements of God is all-powerful. I'm not, most of the time. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm trying to run my life as God, and I'm just so inadequate. I cannot provide what I need. You know, it was real clear to me that I couldn't provide what I needed when I was on the streets. But, but when I was in AA doing this stuff, it, it, that was much more complicated because it looked like I was providing what I needed. Right? It looked like I had all the stuff that I needed. How is that not providing? But I'm still alone and afraid. I'm still the little boy. You see, I have a desire for love that is insatiable. There is no human power no group of humans that can fulfill my desire for love or attention or connectedness or any of that stuff. There just isn't. My hole is so big that it cannot be filled by a human being or a group of human beings. I am incapable of providing that for myself. It doesn't matter how well I hustle you. It doesn't matter how good I am at manipulating you into giving me your time and love and attention and care and all that kind of stuff. It will never, ever be enough for me. Ever. I cannot provide what I need. You know, I, I talk about lack of power. I heard a definition of power that, that, I, that I really enjoy, which is the ability to bring about the desired result. And my desired result was peace. My desired result was to stop the noise and to just feel okay in here and be at peace. And I lacked the power to do that. I could not do that. I could not bring about that result. And it didn't matter how much stuff I had. There is nothing that I can throw at the little boy 
that's alone and afraid, there is nothing that I can throw at him that will make him okay. Nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, does driving a nice car give me some pleasure? Does, you know, being with a nice woman give me some pleasure? Sure. You know, for a, for, for a few moments. Sure. You know, it's not that that's, uh, that doesn't do anything. It does, but it doesn't bring me peace. It does not bring me peace. And so it says, being all powerful, he provided what we needed. Unfortunately, there's more to that sentence. It says, being provided, uh, being all powerful, he provided what we needed if, one, we perform his work well, and two, we stay close to him. And, and I am at a point where I know that I need some kind of magical, mystical, God-like force, something capable of miracles to provide for me. I know that. And now, I just have to stay close to him and perform his work well. And to me, that's it. To me, you know, I want to try and keep it as simple as I can. That needs to be my life. If I want to be at peace and have walked through that, that arch to freedom, and the freedom is where now I no longer come to you to take, but I come to you to give. I am free from you. I need nothing from you. I can stand here and I don't need you to love me or to like me or any of that stuff. That's okay. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to perform God's work. And I'm here to give you everything that I have. Whatever it may be. As long as it will help you. And me and my sponsor get to decide what helps you, not you. <laughs> but I'm free because I need nothing because I've discovered this this alternate source this alternate power this God thing that's going to provide for me and so all I have to do is serve this God thing to you know be willing to give you everything that I have and then to stay close to him, which for me is working through the rest of these steps because I am so distant and blocked from God, not because he's over there, but because I'm over there. You know, that I have to get clear. I have to remove the things that block me from experiencing. You remember that church stuff? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't experience stuff in there, not because the church was wrong, but because I was blocked. I was completely blocked. You know, the, the, uh, the 12 and 12 uh, talks about the, the prayer of St. Francis, and to me it's just a beautiful, wonderful prayer. And um, I was doing some reading on St. Francis, and <clears throat> somebody asked him one time, he said, uh, you know, they, they said, well, you know, why are all these birds coming and flying on you, all these animals and, and this kind of stuff? It's a bit weird, isn't it? And, uh, and he told him this story, and for me this is, this is the story of AA. He said, you know, imagine a, a window, a stained glass window with lots of different pictures and beautiful colors and, and that kind of thing. And he said, um, he said, we're the glass and the sunlight of the spirit. He didn't use those words, but that's in our literature. The sunlight of the spirit shines through the glass. And as it shines through, there's this array of beautiful colors that comes through. And, and in AA, that's what I see, is this array of beautiful colors. So God, you know, may look blue coming from you and green coming from, from somebody else. But it's the sunlight of the Spirit that shines through. And the thing that I forget is that I am simply a pane of glass. You see, I want to stand there as a pane of glass and go, SHINE! <laughs> right? That's what I think my job is. Come on, Toby, SHINE! You've got to shine a bit brighter. And it's not. My only role is to make sure that my pane of glass is clean. That's it. It's to stay close to God. And that's, that's what the steps do for me, is make sure my pane of glass stays clean so that the sunlight of the Spirit can shine through me. So I've got this alternate source that can provide for me.
So I am free to love and need nothing back. In the 12 and 12, it talks about loving that demands no reward. And when I'm connected to this power, I am transformed from a little boy that's alone and afraid to a man that's filled with compassion and love and kindness and tolerance and patience and understanding beyond my capacity. This man is impossible for me to be. It takes a miracle for me to move from a boy that's alone and afraid to a man that's filled with love and compassion. And that's true as long as I'm plugged into the source. As soon as I'm not staying close to God, as soon as this stuff comes in and blocks off and cuts that power source, then I'm back in an instant. It doesn't matter what I did yesterday. It doesn't matter how saintly I was this morning. It doesn't matter how many people I sponsored last week, um, You know how many wonderful talks I've given. All of that is completely irrelevant. Right here, right now, in this moment, right here, right now, am I connected to God? And if I am... I should be willing to give you everything that I have if it will help you. You see, in the old timers are smarter than I am because they trick you into this stuff. <laughs> right? What they do is they don't use this, this kind of language. Um, is they say, go clean the ashtrays. <laughs> right? And what they're saying is, Give everything you have. You see, I thought that it was a requirement that I experienced the source before I would give. And that's not the deal. The deal is, when I give you everything that I have, I am provided for and the stuff arrives. But until I give you everything that I have, there's nothing. There has to be this flow. And the only way that I can start that flow is to give. And that, to me, is my greatest leap of faith, is when I'm not sure that he's going to provide, I have to walk out into the world, not just AA, but I have a unique ability to be helpful in AA, but I have to walk out into the world and give when I'm not sure whether I'm going to be provided for or not. And as soon as I give, I am provided for, not a moment before. And so when those old-timers are telling you to put out the chairs or, you know, uh, volunteer on a service committee and you've got important stuff to do, you know, the important stuff to do for me is me providing for me. You know, I've got to take, take care of my family because I don't think God's going to. Um, you know, I've got to take care of myself because I don't think God's going to. I've got to take care of my reputation because I don't think God's going to. I've got to. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff I've got to take care of before I can really get too terribly involved in what you guys are doing and to give to you freely. There's just a whole bunch of important stuff I've got to do to take care of myself. But the truth is, I have to be willing to give you everything that I've got. And... And in a lot of ways, that was easier at the start of my AA life because I had nothing. <laughs> really, I had nothing. And so, you know, when I'd, I'd walk around and, and give, stuff would arrive. And I didn't put two and two together and it didn't really make sense, but, um, you know, but today it does. So, so if you're sitting around waiting to experience the power, uh, good luck. <laughs> But if you're getting on your butt and you're serving others with no demand uh, and if it's inconvenient for you to do it, the power will arrive, I promise, and you will be provided for, I promise. And you won't be provided for in the way that you think you ought to be, I promise. So, so this sounds kind of pretty and is, is all kind of nice and, and fluffy and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, but, but, but how do we put this into action? So, so, you know, I've, I've come to this, this realization and, and come to this conclusion and, and, and done what I need to do to, um, to remove the things that block the power from flowing through me so that I can love beyond my capacity and have compassion beyond my, my capacity and be transformed from the boy that's alone and afraid to the, the man that, that isn't. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, 
I, like I said, I've given, given up, uh, you know, this job and this home, given up my country, given up all this stuff to, uh, to move here and, and had this, uh, this child. And we actually ended up moving back and then moving back again, uh, to really do the move. And, um, about two months after we got back, uh, my wife, uh, said that she was having an affair and that she wanted a divorce. And I was devastated. Devastated. You know, I'd given up everything that I thought was important to me to move to this country. Um, and I had to make a choice between staying in the country to be a father to my son or to go back home. And I was devastated. And unfortunately, I had made all of these wonderful spiritual discoveries before this happened. And so now I am faced with the truth that I have found that my only role here is to serve and to be loving and that I need to be willing to give everything that I have. I wish this had happened afterwards. (laughs) So how can I walk through this and be loving? And and that was my challenge, and and it was difficult, and I did it very imperfectly, and at times I was rude and nasty. Uh, but my aim was to stay close to God and perform His work. And uh, and then she informed me that she was pregnant by this man, and that he'd gone off. He didn't want to have anything to do with her or this this baby. And and you know I had you know there were uh, what probably seven divorces between my parents and you know I have uh you know stepbrothers and sisters and half brothers and sisters all over the world and that kind of thing and I was determined this would not happen to my children and here I am looking at this and it's it's starting to happen to my children and I was just so determined it wouldn't and um and so there I am I'm uh, I'm in the car um on my way to the airport to uh to actually go to Brazil uh, I just had enough and wasn't going to do it anymore. And had my passport and my bag packed and was on my way to Brazil. And I made a big mistake. Um, you know, if you've got a plan like that, do not do this. It's a big mistake. Uh, I called one of my friends in AA. Um, <laughs> he said, Toby, what are you doing? I said, oh, not much. On my way to the airport to go to Brazil. <laughs> He said, and, and, and he knew, you know, he knew what was going on. He said, oh, okay, but before you go, why don't you stop by and have a cup of coffee with me? Um, <laughs> so I said, well, it's not that far out of the way to go to his house. Well, you know, what's, uh, what's the problem with that? So, um, you know, as, as you all know, I never made it to Brazil. <laughs> and, and it just became very apparent to me that weekend that the only freedom I would have from this was to really love her and to love this unborn child completely unconditionally. And the way that she had behaved, and I'm not claiming that at any point in that relationship did I behave perfectly. I was absolutely flawed in many, many areas. Um, And none of that was excused by what she did. My love for her, my love for anybody cannot be dependent upon what they do. My love for my sponsees cannot be dependent upon them staying sober. If I have a sponsee that drinks, my role is still to love them. And I'll call them and check on them and and that kind of thing. Now what what love looks like, I think again, is important to, to work with my sponsor on. But my role is to perform God's work, which to me is to love the person I'm in front of. That's it. And so I had to find a way to love what was then my ex-wife and this unborn child, and it was impossible again. And so what I had to do was stay close to God, find the things that were blocking me, and let the love flow through me. And it became apparent from doing that that I owed her an amend, and I was, I was so reluctant to do that. I just didn't want to do it because I thought if I made an amend, it meant she was right and I was wrong. 
you know, and I thought that it excused everything that she had done, and I thought that she would take it as, you know, me being a doormat and, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and after this weekend at my friend's house, it, it became apparent that I wouldn't be free unless I did that, because I had not acted with love all the time. And I never will, but... And, and for that, I owed an amend. And so I wrote her an email, um, ran it by my sponsor, and... Um, and basically told her, you know, I've been wrong for not acting with love. And it doesn't matter what you've done. I was wrong for not acting with love. And I will tell you that today uh, she is my wife. And that child is our three-year-old child at home. And I love her and him beyond my capacity. I am not that man. I don't do that. It is impossible. It is impossible for the boy that's alone and afraid to do that. Completely impossible. It's impossible for the boy that's worried about how he's going to get taken care of, how he's going to get what he needs to do that. It's completely impossible. And here I am doing it today. You know, to me, there's only one solution. There's only one explanation for that. And it's this God thing. And so, um, when I was in my very early recovery, the first couple of years of, of uh, recovery, I decided one of the things that was definitely going to fix me was, was women. So I slept with as many women as I possibly could. And after I'd slept with both of them... Um, <laughs> 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 um, I know, I know. It's a sad state. <laughs> um, uh, one, of the, one of them turned out to be uh, pregnant. And, and I bullied this woman into having an abortion. And, you know, where you stand on that is not important. But for me, um, you know, it it felt awful later in recovery. Just felt awful. And so I worked with my sponsor and uh, we were uh, going back through some ninth step stuff. And so I wrote a ninth step letter of amend to this child that that uh, that never made it to the world and and in that I was you know saying well you've you know you've got an older brother now and I wish you guys could play together and uh, just talking about our lives and you know how how it would have been wonderful for him or her to have been a part of it and uh, my youngest son um, the three-year-old is is named Simon and I'd written this letter before any of this stuff had happened. And my wife had chosen that name. I had nothing to do with it. And maybe about a year ago, two years ago, I was going through some old papers and found this ninth step letter. And at the top, it said, Dear Simon. what do you do? <laughs> you know, what do you do? So um, I'm coming to the end of my time and, and um, you know, what, what I also want to be clear about is that this is about not drinking and that this other stuff is crucial to not drinking. And as long as I'm alone and afraid and I've got all these questions and stuff going on and, and, and I am uh, what they call restless, irritable and discontented, I am susceptible to the notion, and only me, because you guys are not stupid enough to believe this, but I am susceptible to the idea that it makes perfect sense for a guy like me to take a drink in spite of the consequences. When I am this man right here, right now, in this moment that is connected to God and performing God's work and filled with love and compassion and kindness and tolerance and patience beyond my capacity when I am that man, I need nothing and I need no relief.
I am not thirsty and I do not need. <sighs> Why would a man like that need to drink? He wouldn't. So it's not that I've sworn off, as they say in the book. It's not that I'm, I'm, I'm hanging around not drinking and, you know, fighting alcohol and that kind of thing. I just don't need to drink. And I'm not thirsty. And the moment, the moment that I am not connected and I lose that power and I go back to this boy that's alone and afraid, I am susceptible to having the idea that it makes perfect sense for me to drink. And there are usually, for me, warning signs that come before that. You know, like I start looking at women inappropriately. Uh, the donuts seem to start getting tastier. Uh, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever it may be, I start, I start to uh, obsess about making more money or having more. Or You know, there's a whole world of stuff that I can try and throw at this boy before I might get to drinking. Or I might just go straight to drinking. But at any point... At any point, I am susceptible when I'm over here, when I'm alone and afraid and that little boy and not connected to God, at any point, I don't care how long I've been sober, I don't care how great I was yesterday. At any point, I am susceptible to, ah, Toby, it's a good idea for a guy like you to take a drink. And when I'm over here and filled with love and compassion and kindness and tolerance and connected, I'm not. I am safe. So, um, it's been a real treat to come and hang out with you guys and, and to, uh, to do this. It's even more of a treat to have it done. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and I sit down there and hear the other speakers. Hey, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, but it's, it's just a real treat and, uh, um, uh, oh. I need to get that in somewhere. I nearly forgot. (laughs) Um, And and you know, the, the, the one thing that I do need from you, the one thing that I do need from you is for you to let me love you and for me to let you help you, help, let me help you. You know, for me to stand here and say I need nothing from you is true, but also if I stood here alone, then I cannot perform God's work with you. I cannot give you everything that I have. And and so I need you for that. And being here and doing this gives me a great opportunity too, and I thank you for that. Thanks.